Welcome, and thank you for joining us on the City Point Church Sermon Podcast, where our desire is to help you follow Jesus. We are so glad that you are here, and wherever you are listening from, we believe that God has something in store for you through today's message. In 1967, the Beatles, which I didn't know this was a Beatles song. Uh, Actually, I'm only familiar with this song because of an episode of Gilmore Girls. Um, But in 1967, the the Beatles came out with a song entitled, With a Little Help from My Friends. 1967, the Beatles came out with a song with a little help from my friends. So that's one working title. In 2005, we fast-forwarded a number of years, 2005, the band Nickelback came out with a song called Photograph, and the very first lines of the song are, look at this photograph. And so if you are familiar with the band Nickelback, you know how, how great of a song that is. Um, um, and then I feel like the best one, but I'm a little biased on this, but as if we can't hear enough and get enough in the news about this person, in 2019, Taylor Swift came out with a song And this song title was called, It's Nice to Have a Friend. And so if you kind of see all of this and uh, we're going to work through this, we'll address this a couple of different ways. So pick one that you you feel you most identify with. If you're unfamiliar with all three of those songs, that's totally fine. Pick whichever one you like best. But do me a favor and look at this photograph with me. This photograph was, if it looks familiar to you, it's actually, it was the backdrop of that looks familiar to you. It's on the other side of that wall right there. It was taken back in April. This is my wife and I. This is a picture of our chosen family, if you will. And so from left to right, uh, as you are looking at it, there's Jacob. Jacob is, when I think of Jacob, I think of someone who's super encouraging. I think of somebody who, no matter how much time I spend with him, whether it's a little, whether we talk about a lot, Jacob is just an encourager, and I am always blessed by time with him. Then next to him is Serene. Serene is Jacob's fiance, and they are getting married in March, and we are looking forward to being a part of that. But when I think of Serene, I think of someone who is very genuine, whose walk with the Lord is very not only convicting, but also very encouraging. Then, obviously, in the middle, you've got my wife and I. You know who we are. Um, and so, uh, and then on the other side of me, there is Marley. Marley, is, uh, Marley and I have very similar personality types. My wife says that she is the girl version of me, which I'm not sure if that is a compliment uh, to me or if that is shade against Marley. Um, I have no idea, but when I think of Marley, I think of someone who is incredibly intelligent and one of the best people to have a theological or a spiritual conversation with. Next to her is Gabrielle. Gabrielle is a treasure of a friend. And when I think of Gabrielle, I think of someone who is a good storyteller. I would, I love listening to Gabrielle tell stories about her life or just some things that happened. When I think of good storytellers, I think of Jesus. I think of Elise Myers, if you're familiar with who that is on Instagram. And I think of Gabrielle. And so I think of, of her as a treasure of a friend and a great storyteller. And then last but not least, on the end is Abigail. Abigail loves like Jesus. To know Abigail is to love her and to be loved by her. And this is this photograph of our chosen family. And the reality is you have photos like this too. 
Maybe it's lifelong friends. Perhaps it's actually biological or extended family. Possibly it's people at this very church. Maybe your photo isn't actually even real. It could be more of a mental photo, one that you hold in your mind where you would identify these would be your people. These would be the people that you do life with. Even Jesus had a photo like this. It wasn't painted until centuries after he walked this earth, but it conveys the same thing. Maybe you've heard of it, the Last Supper. But it is a representation of the people that he did life with. And so, as we have for just a moment walked through the characters represented in this photograph, in similar manner, Paul does in the text that we will look at today as we close out this series through his letter to the church at Colossae. And so we're in Colossians chapter number 4. And we'll begin reading in verse number 7 through the end of the chapter. Verse number 7 of Colossians 4, it says this, Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Verse 13, for I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. See, it's fairly easy to just skip over this text. And even for me, being assigned to this text was not really my favorite thing, but because it's just a bunch of names, and you sit in this and you think, like, what am I supposed to do with all of these names? But the reality is Paul thought these names were important, and greater still, the Spirit wanted them in Scripture for us today, so they must mean something, and it's our job to mine the depths of this and find out what we need to find out. So that leads us to the big idea that we have every week that sits over the top of this portion of scripture, and it is this, our final big idea for this series in Colossians, living Jesus above all, which is the theme, which is the overarching theme of this book. Living Jesus above all is best done alongside those who live that as well. Living Jesus above all is best done alongside those who live that as well. You see, this is vital. As Paul brings this letter all about the unrivaled supremacy of Jesus Christ, as he brings it to a close, he does what he has so often done in his letters. Introduce these churches and individuals to people 
that have been integral to his work as an apostle, that have been indispensable to the church's lives as a local community of followers of Jesus. And these people have been invaluable with regards to advancing forward the mission of the kingdom and of its king. Paul is saying as he closes this and other letters, hey, I'm not a one-man show here. I am not the star, the hero, I'm not the goat, and even if by chance you falsely believe me to be, let me remind you that I cannot now, I have not been, and I will not ever be able to do this alone. God has been so kind to intersect individuals' everyday stories with how he is using me in his story. And so this reality of Jesus above all, it's a theological and spiritual bedrock and cornerstone for our lives. But, and hear me, this is important. It is very important that we understand this is a practical reality that we need to live in every single day. And so this begs the question that we must ask and answer today, what is true of the people who live this as well? What is true of the people who live out Jesus above all? If we're looking to do life with people that believe that as well, for what should we be looking what is true of the people that live Jesus above all? And so I want to encourage you to keep your Bibles open or keep your Bible app lit up and ready to go because we, this will not flow as our regular messages do. We'll jump around a bit in this paragraph and in this section. And so I want us to, as we walk through this, I want us to make much of our look at this inscripturated verbal photograph of how Paul got by with a little help from his friends. And so we're going to look at three characteristics of people that also live out the reality that Jesus is above all. Looking for three characteristics of people who live out Jesus above all. And here's how we'll unpack it this morning. Those who live Jesus above all are, number one, committed to gospel relationships. They are committed to gospel relationships. We are a very complex and layered people. As followers of Jesus, we exist in this very unique trichotomy where three things are true at all times. Number one, we are dependent people. We are dependent on God for everything. He is the source, the substance, the supply. He is the sustaining, the strength. He is all of it. Jesus says in John chapter 15 and verse number 5, without me, you can do nothing. We are dependent on God. At the same time, we are independent. We are independent. We cannot rest on the faith, on the knowledge, on the study, on the spirituality of anyone else. We will stand before God alone being asked the question, what did you do with Jesus? 2 Corinthians 5 says each one of us must give an account. Not all of us, each one of us, which means we don't get to do it together. We don't stand there as a family. We don't stand up there as your life group. You don't stand up there as City Point Church. Each one of us stand before God, and we each must give an account of our lives. And then lastly, we are interdependent. We are interdependent. We need people. Isolation is never what God intended. God looked at all of his creation in Genesis and called it good. But he looked at man being alone and said, that's not good. We as image bearers of God were created to exist with and in relationships. It's a reflection of our triune God who exists eternally in a community within himself. In, in the New Testament, 59 times we encounter the phrase one another. 
which is the Spirit's very sovereign and very kind way of reminding us that we do not exist to live siloed and secluded lives. Living out the Christian life demands that we be engaged in community with others. And here's the thing about this trichotomy. We don't get to pick and choose which one we want. This is not a pick your favorite or best two out of three. These three realities exist in synergy with each other. It's not I've got God so I don't need people. And it certainly cannot be that I go to my people before I have gone to my God. So as Paul closes this letter and he starts rattling off these names, these are the people that he wants to highlight with whom he is interdependent. These were people in Paul's life committed to gospel relationships. So we'll look at the first one in verse number 10. Verse number 10 of of Colossians 4, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Aristarchus, here's the tag that's going to go with his name, and we will mention each person's name and a tag that goes along with that name. So if you're taking notes, Aristarchus is the friend with the fearless heart. Aristarchus is the friend with the fearless heart. Paul mentions him as a fellow prisoner. We meet Aristarchus for the first time in Acts chapter 20 and verse number 4. He's among a group traveling with Paul. We get more insight in Acts 27 in verse 2, where Paul, who is a prisoner, is traveling to Rome, and Aristarchus is there with him. So from the day that he joined Paul, Aristarchus just had a habit of being with him whenever he was imprisoned. And that's not easy. Because there's certainly so much that he could have been doing for himself, even for the spreading of the gospel, but because he was committed to gospel relationships, he was going to stand by Paul no matter what. When things were good, he was there, but especially when Paul was imprisoned and in chains and struggling, he was there for him. He was the friend with the fearless heart, that it didn't matter that Paul was about to get arrested, Aristarchus was going to be right there with him. Then jump down to verse number 11, we'll see the next person Like Jesus, who is called Justice, he is a friend that brought comfort. A friend that brought comfort. You see, we don't get a lot here about this man, and the rest of Scripture doesn't afford us much either. Jesus may have likely been his given Jewish name, but his Roman name was Justice, and in reverence, he mostly went by that name instead. And Paul tells us that he was one of three people with Aristarchus and Mark, who were of the circumcision. In other words, they were Jewish. Now, this is important because Paul is also Jewish, and Paul has a heart and a desire to see the Jews, to see the nation of Israel come to put their faith in the Messiah. That is what he desired. In fact, in Romans, he said that he wished for all of Israel to come to the knowledge of the truth, even if that meant that he would be accursed himself. And so for Paul, it was a big deal when there was someone who was of Jewish lineage and formerly of Jewish faith who had now put their faith in the Messiah and now were helping Paul. It meant a great deal to him and it brought him great comfort. And then in verse number 7, we're going to jump back up to verse number 7 and we're going to meet the first person that we are introduced to in this section here. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. Tychicus is the friend with the servant's heart. He's the friend with the servant's heart. Paul refers to him as a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. 
we are also first introduced to Tychicus in Acts chapter 20 and verse 4. And from that point on, each time we meet him in the New Testament, what we find is that Tychicus is always traveling somewhere with Paul or on Paul's behalf. Either he's going somewhere with him or he's being sent on under Paul's authority and under Paul's leadership, he's being sent on Paul's behalf. And then in verse number 8, I have sent him to you, Paul writes to this church, for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Tychicus was very committed to gospel relationships. So picture this. From Rome, where they were, where he and Paul were at this time, he leaves and walks across Italy to the coast of the Adriatic Sea. He then sails across the Adriatic and lands in Greece, and then he walks across Greece to the shore of the Aegean Sea, and he comes to a place called Miletus, and from there, he takes by foot a very intense journey up a steep path to the city of Colossae. Why does he do that? To deliver this letter. But not only this one, Tychicus on that same journey would deliver the letter to the church in Ephesus that we have come to know as the book of Ephesians. He would also have in his possession another letter to a man named Philemon, who we will talk about more in a few minutes. And some believe that there may have even been a fourth letter to a church in Laodicea. This was not an easy journey, but it was important that he made it. Why? Well, for starters, this very letter that you hold in your laps, this very letter that we have in our possessions that we are studying right now is made humanly possible because Tychicus was committed to gospel relationships. Not just with Paul, but also with the believers that Paul was seeking to encourage. We see that in, in, in the fact that the purpose of his visit was to inform the church of how things were going with Paul. So this church cared for him and wanted to know what he had been up to. What was Paul doing? How was he doing? But he was also there to encourage the church, Paul says. And so here's the presumption that we have. That Tychicus would go deliver the letter to the church. He would tell the church, this is how Paul is doing. This is what he's doing. This is what we can expect to happen next. And then from there, he would encourage the church. He would encourage them in whatever they were dealing with, whatever they were doing. And then he would, the presumption is that he would leave and go back to Paul and tell Paul how they were doing. So that they know how Paul's doing, Paul knows how they're doing, and even though Paul was not the pastor of his church, even though he hadn't started it, he loved them and they loved him. And so they wanted to know how he was, he wanted to know how they were, how had they received the letter? How were they addressing some of the theological concerns that Paul had come to know about? How did they receive it, and were they good now? Or were they like Corinth that would be needing a second, not-so-friendly letter? The summarizing reality is that pretty much all of the names mentioned in this conclusion would fit here within this point. All of the names mentioned here would fit here because they were people that were committed to gospel relationships. But now we've looked at this, and now we have to ask ourselves the question, what does that look like for us today? What does being committed to gospel relationships look like for us today? And here are three ways that you can stay committed, that we can stay committed to gospel relationships. Number one, we prioritize Christ as the primary unifier. 
we prioritize Christ as the primary unifier. We reference this as we studied chapter 3 and verse number 11 a number of weeks ago, that there is no difference between Jew and Greek or Gentile, that there's no difference between circumcised and uncircumcised, that there's no difference between slave and free, but that in Christ everything is unified. And we mentioned that society is a longing for this unity that is only found in the church. They are longing for this unity where everyone is on the same page. But the problem is that they are looking for it in politics. They are looking for it here in socioeconomic things. They are looking for it here with these different ideologies. But where the church has found its unity is in Christ. He is the primary unifier. We prioritize Christ as our primary unifier, and we can stay committed to gospel relationships. Why? Because what is different about us pales in comparison to the one thing that unifies us together. And that's why we can gather in a room like this with people from all different walks of life and all different places and stories, and we can gather together because we are worshiping one person. We are unified under one banner. We are flying one single flag, and that is Christ. But secondly, the second way that we can do this is that we pursue others in crisis, in comfort, and in confession. We pursue others in crisis, comfort, and confession. So like Aristarchus, who was right by Paul in times of crisis. Like Justice, who was a comfort to him, but not just a comfort when things were difficult, but present when things are comfortable. That's important as well. Because I think this tends to be one of the easiest things for us to overlook. We see people doing well, and we think, oh, they're fine. They don't need anybody. They don't need anything. But being committed to gospel relationships means being present at all times and for all seasons. And then we pursue others in confession. We don't shame. We don't guilt trip. We don't don't, uh, judge people. We give grace because we need grace, right? We show up and we express gratitude for transparent confession. And we lovingly remind one another of who we are in Christ. And we pursue that. And then lastly, the third way that we can stay committed to gospel relationships is that we would practice submissive service. Ephesians 5 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We can stay committed to gospel relationships by serving one another with Christ as the model. John chapter 13, Jesus says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. Through love, Galatians 5 tells us that we are to serve one another. When we serve others, we are entering into and staying committed to gospel relationships. What does that look like for you every day? That means showing up. That means serving someone who needs it. But in this context here at City Point Church, what could that look like for you? That would look like you joining a team. And serving on a team, how can you serve others? Yes, we are serving Christ. Yes, we are acting, uh, we are giving our worship back to him. We are ascribing worth to him by saying, God, you have gifted me in this area, and I want to serve in this area. Yes, it is an act of worship, but it is also a way to serve others and to live out the fact that we are committed to gospel relationships. That we would say, yeah, I can hold the door open. 
Yeah, I can help someone find their seat on Sunday morning. Yeah, I can hold a baby in the nursery. Yeah, I can serve in kids and disciple them. Yes, I can join a prayer team. I can do those things because I want to serve one another because I am committed to gospel relationships. And so those that live out Jesus above all are committed to gospel relationships. But number two, those that live Jesus above all are, number two, concentrated on gospel work. They are concentrated on gospel work. Gospel work is what we do for the sake of the gospel because of the transformation that believing the gospel has caused in our lives. Gospel work is what we do for the sake of the gospel because of the transformation that believing the gospel has caused in our lives. The reason this is critical is because this work flows from the source of a relationship with Jesus. It does not precede it. We don't go out and say, I'm going to do all of these things and hope that God is pleased with me and hope that I can be approved by God or hope that things are going to be good with my relationship with God. But from my relationship with God, I serve and I engage in gospel work. And so as Paul tells us more about these people in this verbal photograph, we begin to unpack another very present characteristic in the lives of those that live out Jesus above all as well, that it's nice to have a friend that is concentrated on gospel work. Verse 14. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Luke is, here's the tag that goes with Luke's name, Luke is the friend that's apparently also a doctor. I was telling some people as I was preparing this paragraph that uh, it's just a little humorous because of, to a degree, because of verses like this. Because if we're being real, here's how it reads. Luke is here, he's a doctor, and he says hi. Also, Demas is here too, and he says hi. And so as Paul is like closing this letter, he's just telling us about all these people that are here with him and that they say hi, and we find out that Luke is a doctor. Luke traveled with Paul throughout much of the book of Acts. Luke authored the gospel bearing his own name and the book of Acts. But it's not until here and only here that we find out, oh yeah, he's a doctor. And it is possible that he's in Rome to see Paul and to deliver this letter that he's penned as well. And so there's Luke, and then there's Demas. And Demas is a little bit more sober because Demas is the friend that would change. Demas is the friend that would change. In Philemon 24, Demas is referenced among Paul's fellow laborers. But at the end of Paul's life, in the last letter that he writes, he writes to Timothy, who is pastoring in Ephesus, and he tells him that Demas, in love with this present world, has left him. And while we don't have adequate time to unpack all that might sit underneath that statement, we acknowledge that there was a season when Demas was concentrated on gospel work, and then over time that changed, and he walked away from it. And you and I might have a friend or two like that. One that you thought so highly of, but for one reason or another, they changed, and it's not like that anymore. Then in verse 15, we meet Nympha, who is just a lady who is hosting a church, possibly the Laodicean church in her home. Then Archippus in verse 17, who was possibly the pastor of that church in Laodicea, 
And then we go back to verse number 12. I know we're jumping around a bit, so I'm hoping that you're staying with me. Verse number 12, and we meet Epaphras. Epaphras is the friend devoted to the discipleship of others. Epaphras is the friend devoted to the discipleship of others in verse 12. Paul refers to Epaphras as a servant of Christ Jesus, which we'll examine more in a moment. But Epaphras is the only one of this entire group of names that we are actually being reintroduced to. If you remember, we first met this friend of Paul's at the beginning of this letter. Way back, 15 weeks ago, we met Epaphras at the beginning of this letter. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 7, where we learned that essentially Epaphras was the one responsible for bringing the gospel to this church. Paul did not start this church himself. So when Paul mentions at the close of this letter that Epaphras is there and he says he's one of you, they know exactly who he's talking about. And look at how Paul describes him. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. And this is really unique. The use of the word servant here is different than how he uses it in verse 7 to describe Tychicus. It's not the same. And so here's what happens. How Paul uses the word servant here is only used by him in all of his letters to describe himself. In Romans chapter 1 and verse number 1, Paul would open and say, Paul, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he would use this only two other times. In Philippians, when he's talking about himself and Timothy. And here, when he's talking about Epaphras. Why does this matter? Because there was something about the way that Epaphras was concentrated on gospel work. That Paul looked at him and said, that man is a slave for Christ Jesus. He has given his very life to this work. Epaphras' gospel work was prayer. Prayer is hard work, and Epaphras did it diligently. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. His manner of prayer is important. How is he praying? He's praying as he is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. That word struggling is this idea of fervently laboring. It suggests heavy toil to the extent of physical pain. In other words, Paul is saying Epaphras is over here praying so hard for you that it literally hurts him. That's how hard Epaphras is praying for you, but not just his manner of prayer, his matter of prayer. What is he praying? That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. And if that sounds familiar, that's exactly what Paul says they are praying for back in Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 9. Can you imagine where he got that from? Can you imagine him hearing and seeing Epaphras on his knees begging and pleading with God, not for himself, not for his family, not for more people to attend the church, but for the believers to stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. He prayed it so hard that it hurt him. And then Paul goes kind of next level, and he tells us in verse 13 that he's not just praying this for you, Colossae. He's burdened about this being true of all the believers 
in the Lycus River Valley. And so this is an area where there were three cities. So Colossae is here. We're familiar with this one. To the north of Colossae is a city called Laodicea. It is the same Laodicea that we would come to know in Revelation 3 for a not-so-great reason. And then north of Laodicea, there's a city called Hierapolis. And what Epaphras is praying is that the believers in all of those cities, in all of that area, would stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. And Paul says in verse 13, For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. I've seen him work hard in prayer for you and for the believers in those cities. These all, as Paul writes this letter to this church, were concentrated on gospel work. Delivering letters, praying fervently for the increasing discipleship and maturity of others, doctors, church hosts, pastors, and on and on. Paul is reminding us that he's getting by with a little and in most cases a lot of help from his friends. But what does gospel work look like for us today? We're not delivering letters. We're not specifically hosting church in our home. But what does gospel work look like for us today? Here's three simple ways for you and I to be engaged in gospel work. The first way that you and I can be engaged in gospel work is by praying. We have spent a lot of time over the last few weeks talking about prayer because we cannot exhaust it enough. But praying is the work. We did talk about this last week, that praying prepares us for the work of the mission. But prayer is also the work of the mission of Jesus Christ, that we would pray, that we would be empowered by God to do what he has called us to do. Praying is a way that you and I can engage in gospel work. But number two is going. You and I can go and engage in gospel work. Now, if you grew up anything like me or in a church background, anything like mine, you were kind of under the impression that going was for a select few people. That going was for those in vocational, full-time Christian ministry. Going was for the pastor. Going was for the church staff. Going was for the missionary who's going around the world and going to a different country and assimilating to that country and sharing the gospel with those people and learning a language and that there are prayers and then there are goers and I might not be a goer and you might not be a goer. That's not true. Every single one of us is a goer. Every single one of us need to be going. It's not, I'll pray, you go. Going is not, God has called me across town to start a church. God has called me across the country to pastor a church. God has called me and my family across the world to be a missionary. God has called you across the street to talk to your neighbor. God has called you to go next door and speak to your neighbor. God has called you to go to the barista at the coffee shop that you frequent. And I know we struggle with this part of going because we think, I, I can't go. I'm not called to go. But can I tell you, you are. But not only praying and going, but also giving. We give towards the gospel work. Not because, not, it, it has nothing to do with, the church is just trying to get my money. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with the fact that where your treasure is, your heart is tied to that. And God wants your heart to be tied to gospel work. And so he says, give to gospel work. 
This is another way that you can engage in it. Can I tell you, this also exists as a trichotomy. You don't get to pick one or the other. It's not a pick best two out of three. These are all three things that each of us as followers of Jesus must engage in. We have to do it. Because of what the transformation that believing the gospel has done in our lives. I'm not saying you have to do it because God is keeping score. I'm saying you have to do it because if you have been transformed by the power of the gospel, you have no other choice. You are compelled by the love of Christ to engage in this. We have to do it. Those who live out Jesus above all are people that are concentrated on gospel work, that are committed to gospel relationships, and number three, lastly, that are concerned with gospel reconciliation. Those that believe that Jesus, that live out Jesus above all, are concerned with gospel reconciliation. Reconciliation is defined as the removal of inconsistency, Harmony, the reestablishing of cordial, loving relationships. In other words, reconciliation is reuniting two things in a peaceful manner. And we're about to see not just Paul be concerned with that, but that it's nice to have a friend that is concerned with that as well. Verse 10. We read about Aristarchus, but then we meet Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you... Welcome him. Mark is the friend that left but came back better. Mark is the friend that left but came back better. And we won't spend much time on this because there is one more friend that I want us to sit in and give much attention to. But we meet Mark in Acts chapter 13, verse 4, for the very first time. He is the one who is the human author of the gospel of Mark. We meet him. He's with Paul and Barnabas traveling. He goes and he leaves them. And then at the end of Acts chapter 15, we find out that Mark wants to rejoin them as they leave again. And Paul will not have it. He doesn't want Mark to go with him. And Barnabas, his cousin, is trying so hard. He's traveled with Paul. He's trying so hard to get Paul to agree to let him come. The division is so strong. The tension is so heavy between them that Paul and Barnabas go their separate ways. Paul leaves with Silas. Barnabas leaves with Mark. And goes, they go their separate ways because Paul didn't want anything to do with Mark who had left them earlier. And so we get here in Colossians and we pick up on the fact that Paul now talks about Mark differently. Very differently than the last time, the last interaction that we saw between them. And it would seem as though Paul's heart had softened, that he had made amends and reconciled with Mark. And at the very end of Paul's life, in the same letter that he writes to Timothy, telling him of Demas leaving, Paul encourages Timothy. He says, Timothy, come visit me in prison. Who He's essentially on death row. He's about to die. And he says, bring Mark with you, for he is profitable to me. We don't know the details, but Paul was definitely offended. And though it may have taken a a while, though it may have taken some time, he reconciles with Mark because there's a concern for gospel reconciliation. And then in verse 9, verse 9 will be our last character that we meet, Onesimus. Onesimus is the friend who 
had a sinful past. The friend who had a sinful past. Onesimus has quite the story. He was a slave for a man named Philemon. And if that name might sound familiar, it is because he is a prominent member of the church at Colossae. But more than that, there is a New Testament epistle that bears his name. That epistle, that letter, is a personal letter from Paul to Philemon that he wrote not to a church, but to the individual. Onesimus, we come to learn, was a runaway slave. And not only did he leave, but as he left, he actually stole something from the home of Philemon on his way out. Here's why this is bad. Onesimus had been a thief and an unfaithful servant or an unfaithful slave. In the Roman Empire, both were a very big deal. There were thieves that were crucified next to Jesus, if that tells you what the Roman Empire thought of thieving. But for a slave to run away was essentially a death sentence were they ever to be caught. If a slave ran away and was caught, they would take them and brand a stamp on them And usually it would be on their forehead, and the brand would signify that they were a fugitive. They would be returned to the master from whom they fled, and they would be executed. So that's not great. Onesimus runs, and he flees to Rome, and across the Roman Empire there are 12 million slaves. And in Rome, there are two million people in the city. And so he is sure that he can get lost in the crowds and fall into obscurity. But coincidence of all coincidences, of all the people that he could run into, he runs into the Apostle Paul. Who not only is committed to sharing the gospel with everyone that he meets, but oh yeah, he's a personal friend of Onesimus' master, Philemon. And is the human reason why Philemon is a follower of Jesus. Oops. Onesimus would be transformed by the gospel. And Paul would disciple him. And then one day Paul says, okay, it's time for you to go back. It's time for you to go back, Onesimus. Go back to Philemon. It's time for you to go back and make things right with him. And you can imagine Onesimus is like, wait, what? Can you, can you repeat that? You want me to go back? Philemon had every right to kill him. Philemon had every legal right to reject him and kill him on arrival the moment he saw his face. That is what the law said he could do. So Paul writes this letter to Philemon and he sends it with Tychicus and Onesimus. This letter is a plea for Philemon to reconcile with the man that had so wronged him and truly deserved punishment. But there's two things that we must sit in here first. First, we have to talk about this every time it comes up because it's important that we don't lose sight of it. We cannot think that Paul is telling Onesimus to go back to a system of slavery as we have come to know it today. We cannot think that Paul is saying, Onesimus, go back to that type of slavery. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but slavery then was not the same as the scarlet mark that slavery has given America and modern society today. It was not ethnic, but economic. It was not one person or people group were thought better than another. It was not a rule of abusive authority. There were multiple reasons why someone would be a slave. And so Paul is not saying go back to being mistreated and being abused and being, uh, uh, and being uh, 
degraded and all of that. He's not saying, Onesimus, go back to that. He's saying, go back to do what you are supposed to be doing. Secondly, because of Onesimus' new life in Christ, his past was to be a non-factor. That was the purpose of the letter to Philemon. Don't hold his past against him. I know he ran away. I know he stole something. Don't hold his past against him. He left as an unfaithful runaway, but he's coming back, as Paul would say in verse 9, a faithful and beloved brother. I'm going to put a quote on the screen because as we went over this message earlier this week, uh, it was really hard to understand if you didn't see it. And so here's this quote. In Christ, he, Christ, assures that someone with a past has a past that is past. I felt like you needed to see it to really understand what I'm trying to say because I said a lot of words and I said a lot of things a couple of times. But in Christ, someone with a past He assures that that person with a past has a past that is past. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 10, we see that as Paul is writing this letter to this church, he's saying things in the past tense. He's saying in these, verse 7, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but now have been made alive. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul lists of unrighteous lifestyles and behaviors, and he says to that church in Corinth, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. In other words, you were positionally declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He's saying this was true about you, but not anymore. And what, Philemon, or what Paul is writing to Philemon in this letter about Onesimus is, this was true about him, but not anymore. The meanest circumstance of present life. And the greatest wickedness of former life make no difference in spiritual relation among Christians. For we all partake of the same privilege and are entitled to the same reward. If you are here and you are saying, how could God forgive me for my past? If you are here and you are saying, I am a follower of Jesus, but I am not sure that he's really forgiven me of everything that I've done. I'm not sure that where I currently sit right now makes me in right standing with God. We have misunderstood the gospel. Because your past is a non-factor because of Christ. So Paul is saying to Onesimus, and to Philemon, you have both now been reconciled to God through faith in the atoning death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And because of his substitutionary death on the cross and his triumphant victory over the grave three days later, you can now be reconciled to each other. You have been forgiven so you can forgive. Friends, Onesimus takes the exact same journey that we talked about earlier that Tychicus took Onesimus takes it right along with him. And he does so having no idea how Philemon will receive him, having no clue if he'll lovingly be welcomed back. But he goes 
Why does he go having no idea what's going to happen? Because he's concerned with gospel reconciliation. He's saying, I at least have to go and make this right. Reconciliation is not an ignoring of wrongdoing. It's not a minimizing of it or sweeping it under the rug. But this, this picture that we get here, this is the goal. That we would reestablish cordial and loving relationships with those who have wronged us or that we have wronged. Friends, because Jesus Christ came to this earth and lived a perfect and a sinless life, because his finished work on the cross accomplished through his atoning death, because of that substitutionary death on the cross and his triumphant victory over the grave, three days later, we can both now and forever be reconciled to God by faith in Christ Jesus. Our past does not define us. In Christ, our past is past, and we stand positionally righteous before him in the courtroom of heaven, and his spirit works in us today, progressively making us more like him until the day that we are perpetually with him for all of eternity. But until that day, we are concerned with gospel reconciliation. We don't just welcome it, we pursue it. We have been forgiven, so we can As human beings, we cannot and we must not live life alone. That was never God's intent. And that's no different for the follower of Jesus. We need those mental or even actual tangible photographs that we pull out from time to time and we say, look at this photograph. This person showed up when I had nothing and they encouraged me. Think about the people in your photograph. Think about the people that you do life with. This person traveled a great distance to support me in a difficult season. This person constantly calls me out when I'm drifting, when I'm distracted, when I'm doubting. This person holds me accountable in battling temptation, never with shame or guilt, but with grace and love and the truth. This person is a comfort because they are just always there. When I need a helping hand, this person just shows up and serves with no second thought. When I think of this person, I think of someone that seems to have God's ear bent towards them. So when I need prayer, I ask them to pray with me, to pray for me. This person cares deeply for my discipleship for my children's. This person is constantly asking how my marriage is and what God is teaching me and my spouse in this season. This person walks in when it feels like everyone else has just walked out. This person and I used to not get along. We used to struggle, but because of what because of what they did to me or what I said about them, but now we serve and love and worship and glorify Jesus together. So here's the big idea. Living Jesus above all. Living this out. Living out the theme of the unrivaled supremacy of Jesus Christ. Living that out in our everyday lives is best done alongside those who 
live that as well. Those who would say, I'm committed to gospel relationships. No matter what, no matter where you are, what you're going through, I'm committed to this relationship. To those that would say, I'm concentrated on gospel work. We'll pray together. We'll go together. We give together. We, we do all of these things. We're committed to the gospel work. And those that say, I'm concerned with gospel reconciliation. When things are wrong, we make it right. When things are off, we go to the other person. And we say, I want to be right with you. I want this cordial and loving relationship to be reestablished. It doesn't mean you've forgotten about what has happened or you've, you've, you've forgotten about what's been done, but you're going to establish a loving relationship again. And it might look different. The everyday connection and relationship might look different, but the reconciliation, hey, I'm not holding this against you anymore. I am releasing you of this. I know you wronged me. I know that this hurt me, but we're gonna make this right because I'm concerned with don't walk away. You don't walk away when it gets difficult and you have to do this. You ask God to help you do it. And every week we have a learning to live where we don't, where we want to take the word that we have just heard and studied and looked at and we want the spirit of God to make application in our lives. And so it's going to be a little different. We only have one learning to live today. It's not a question a statement, and it is this. Don't just look for those people. Be those people. Don't just look for people that fit everything that we've just talked about over the last 40 minutes. Don't just look for them. Be that person. Be the person that's committed to the gospel relationships. Be the person that is concentrated on the gospel work and spurring others on to get involved in the work in whatever way they need to. Be the one that seeks out the reconciliation. Don't just look for those people. Be those people. Thank you for joining us today. To find out more about City Point Church, visit us online at citypointaz.com. You can also find us on social media at CityPointAZ. Be sure to leave a review, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends. Now from us here at City Point Church, go seeking to live on mission for the glory of God with this truth stamped over your life that you are loved.